Good. It was very, uh, very good to be back here again. I think uh, I was here last year, and then the year before, I remember it was, what, right before the election, wasn't it? Right, so today it's the day after the election. And <clears throat> I'm going to connect our inner practice with how we relate to the larger world. I'm going to do that around perhaps the most fundamental theme of the uh, teachings of the Buddha. At one point he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, dukkha and the end of dukkha. And many of you know that dukkha is typically translated by suffering. And I like to translate it a little differently and translate it as reactivity or the tendency of the mind and heart and body to either push away compulsively or uh, automatically as when you know, someone says something to me and I instantly react right back because I don't like it. Although I don't think to myself, I don't like it, I just react. <laughs> right? Or when uh, something doesn't go like I want and I judge myself. Right? That would, those would be examples of reactivity. Uh, where we don't like something because it doesn't feel good, unpleasant, whatever. And the other form of reactivity is that we uh, grab hold. Again, somewhat automatically or compulsively, we grab hold of the pleasant. And that's a little more subtle sometimes, right? The, the uh, reaction against what we don't like, whether internal, interpersonal, social, that's pretty clear, you know, self-judging, blaming, that's pretty clear. The way that we grasp onto the pleasant sometimes is clear, like, you know, maybe related to addiction or food or whatever, you know, that, that can be clear, but sometimes it's more subtle. So I want to try to unpack the meaning of I teach one thing and one thing only, dukkha and the end of dukkha. I want to unpack that both at the level of the individual and at the level of the society, with a little bit of a bow to the election. <laughs> I don't know if bow is the right word, but anyway, little so uh, to make make those connections. Okay. So again, uh, dukkha has different meanings, and again, typically translated as uh, suffering. Uh, and there are multiple meanings in the text, but I think the core meaning really comes out in one particular teaching, which uh, I may have taught here before because it's one that's really central to me. This is called the teaching of the two arrows. How many of you know that teaching of the two arrows? Yeah, yeah a lot of you, great. And so it's really, for me, the teaching which gets most at this uh, understanding of the whole center of the path of practice being about uh, transforming dukkha or transforming reactivity. So here's the teaching. Uh, the Buddha was with a group of practitioners and he said, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. How is a practitioner different from a non-practitioner? 
And we have to remember that a non-practitioner includes someone who thinks oneself to be a practitioner when one is not practicing. <laughs> so don't think that you're necessarily a practitioner at all moments, okay? Just to be clear. And so um, they did not answer his questions. So as was often the case in his teaching, he would pose a question, no one would answer it, and he would answer it himself. Okay, that's what he did. And he said, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. He said, this was like being shot by an arrow. So we can, and he was talking mostly in the text about what was physically unpleasant. I'm going to generalize it to mean what, well, not only what was, what's physically unpleasant, but also what's emotionally unpleasant, interpersonally unpleasant, you know, and so forth. So, so we sometimes, of course, have unpleasant physical experiences. We you know, get ill, we stub our toes, we uh, have injuries, you know, we have parts of our bodies wear out and so forth, right? And uh, everyone at times has those experiences. We also at times have difficult emotional experiences. We uh, get angry, upset, irritated, sad, and so forth. And we can have that occur in relation to what's happening in our own lives. We can have it in relation to an interaction with someone. We can have difficult emotions arising from all sorts of situations. Again, in that everyone at times has those difficult experiences. Um, we can have difficult thoughts. We can have negative narratives about the future. We can have self-judgment, uh, strong judgmental energy towards others, and so forth. Uh, and that at times is what we experience. We can also be at times treated unfairly or unjustly, and this is all uh, part of what we may experience that time. He said that that's like being shot by the first arrow when any of those things occur. It's the arrow of the unpleasant. Sometimes that occurs. In that, a practitioner is no different from a non-practitioner. So, of course, what the difference is, is what happens after one is shot by the first arrow. He said that uh, the difference is that a non-practitioner, remembering that that means us when we're not practicing skillfully, he said a non-practitioner shoots a second arrow as if that would help. And that is, you know, and uh, the practitioner learns not to do that. So let me say what that means. So what does it mean to shoot the second arrow? At the level of uh, what's physically unpleasant, we may tense around something that's unpleasant. And uh, I have heard from people who work with chronic pain that as much as 80% of chronic pain of some kinds, of a uh, number of kinds, not all kinds, as much as 80% of chronic pain is the reaction to the chronic pain. It's not the, it's not the first arrow, it's the second arrow, in other words. And so the... Uh, first major intervention using mindfulness in the medical field was in the area of chronic pain by John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Because if you can get people to learn not to uh, shoot the second arrow, not to have that 80%, 
they still have the 20%, but it's a big difference, right? And so they can learn to do that. You know, at the level of uh, the emotions and thoughts, it's pretty clear what shooting the second arrow means, right? I have something difficult, and because I have a difficult experience, I blame myself, I blame others, I create negative storylines, I think this will always keep happening. Is this familiar? Right, we, we do this. You know, something goes wrong in my close relationship, and, you know, I go to negative scenarios or being judgmental or whatever, right? And I get stuck there. Right? And the same thing can happen when there's uh, unfairness or injustice. I may, uh, because of that, get really reactive and actually something bad has happened to me, I may bring something bad to the person who I think did it. And so a large number of conflicts, maybe most of the conflicts in the world, are two groups or two people shooting second arrows at each other. Really make some sense of those kind of dynamics. Does that make some sense? That, and so what the uh, Buddha said is that it's possible not to shoot the second arrow. It's possible really to, in other words, not be reactive. Because I would, I would say that shooting the second arrow is reactive, is reactivity. I like that a little bit better than suffering. Because when, with suffering, in English, that sometimes is synonymous with pain. And if we were going to make a technical distinction, we would say that the first arrow is pain and the second arrow is the reaction to the pain. Sometimes we call that suffering, but sometimes we don't. That's why I like reactivity a little bit better. The other reason I like reactivity better is that it also includes not just the pushing away of the unpleasant, but the grasping after the pleasant, which is a kind of reaction. I want that third piece of cake for supper. I really do. <laughs> right? Or I'm grasping after something happening in my work, my relationship, my family, and so forth, you know. Or I have an agenda for this meeting and I grasp so much after getting my agenda item through that I cause a mess in the meeting or I have people tell me I'm a control freak or something. <laughs> Which is their reacting to my reacting. <laughs> Right, so you can see how it keeps going on. That's a, when I say the second arrow, it's actually shorthand for the second through the 25,000th arrow being shot, because it just keeps going, right? right? And so does that make some sense of uh, reactivity? And so actually one could speak of the essence of the practice that we do in a very simple way in any given moment it's to be responsive rather than reactive. That's it. It's very ordinary English for this ancient tradition, right? And again, being responsive sounds kind of modest, but it's actually profound. To be truly responsive, we actually have to be internally free. So it's, a, it's really, you know, if we're caught, we're not going to truly be responsive. So I'm using responsive in a special way to mean not being reactive. And so, that I think is really at the uh, core of our, of our practice. And um, 
when we actually take that deeply, we take non-react, we really work to see where am I reactive in one of those two ways and study it with our mindfulness and work with it and get interested in where we're reactive. When we do that, our practice accelerates. And I, I know probably many of you, you're doing that. You know? You're interested, you know, you know, initially in meditation, we're just interested in being more calm or peaceful. But when we get to a certain level of maturity, often not too far along, we get interested in seeing where we shoot the second arrow, where we're reactive, because with our tools, we can transform the reactivity and turn it into responsiveness. You know, easier with some of the ones that are less, what, uh, charged for us, harder with some of the charged ones, but we can do that. That is the core of our practice. For me, that's actually a very simple way of talking about the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. It's pretty much being responsive rather than reactive. Now, we have a lot of tools for that, so I'm going to, what I'm going to do is to talk about the meaning briefly now, what that means, how we do that on an individual level, and then I'm going to point to how we understand the same teaching on a larger level. Yeah. Uh, because it's interesting, the Buddha and this was pointed out by a friend of mine who's also a teacher named Santikaro. Does anyone know Santikaro? Uh, he doesn't teach, doesn't teach in this area so much, but he lives in Wisconsin. He was a monk with uh, Achan Buddha Dasa in Thailand for a lot of years. I met him there when he was a monk, when I was at that monastery for a while in the, like, the early 90s. And um, he once said that the Buddha taught dukkha and the end of dukkha. And when he was talking about dukkha, he just said dukkha. He didn't say my dukkha. I should just clean up my dukkha. <laughs> he didn't say that. He said clean up dukkha. And so one could interpret that as meaning that it's not just about taking care of oneself, but also about taking care of others and finding the dukkha in the world the reactivity in the world. So that changes things. I like that interpretation, you know, because we have, might have tendencies, especially in this country, just to think meditation is about taking care of my dukkha, my reactivity, right? So uh, I'll come back to that when I, when I look at the more uh, collective level. And by the way, I'm going to try to speak for a little while more and have a fair amount of time for talking together which is my favorite part of taking this role. Really connecting, seeing what you're, how, how it lands for you, and so forth. So, maybe just one other word. There's, um, there's a, a central teaching that some of you know also called dependent origination, which was the teaching that came to the Buddha during his awakening. And it's a more, uh, what, complex way of talking about this. I just want to talk about one part of it which brings out this teaching a little bit more. It's basically saying that in every experience we have, there is some feeling tone. And by feeling tone, he means a sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. In every experience, it could be very softly pleasant, like right now. What's it like in your body? You know, when I look at my bodily experience right now, kind of warm, 
Not real pleasant, but kind of a little bit pleasant. That's the feeling tone, right? And we could have, uh, we could have uh, experiences that go on a spectrum from basically from agony to ecstasy. That's the spectrum of feeling tone. And uh, you know, most of our experiences are pretty much in the middle. I think when they did some studies, like 98% of our experiences are relatively neutral. We're pretty interested in the pleasant ones and the unpleasant ones, <laughs> especially. That's what we're really, we're, we have our radar out for the pleasant and the unpleasant, right? Anyway, um, in the teaching, w when we have a pleasant experience and we're not mindful, we don't notice it, when we're on automatic, we tend to want the pleasant more and tend to grasp for it. Likewise, when we have an unpleasant experience and we're not aware of it, we will tend to not want that to be present and we will tend to push it away. And that's the underlying dynamic, you know, that, that is, again, this very simple teaching right at the core of it. So one way to practice with this teaching is to pay attention to when things are significantly pleasant or significantly unpleasant and watch what the mind does. Because the teaching is that when you're not really tracking it, or even when you're tracking it, there'll be a tendency to want and grab hold of the pleasant and not want and push away the unpleasant. And probably it's a little easier to study with the unpleasant. You know? you know. But you can, it's very good, you know, we just had a retreat and I, we taught about uh, some of this stuff and I said, you know, study all this during the meals. <laughs> really good cooking. At Southern Dharma, the retreat center, and uh, you can really look at that. So, how to practice to transform reactivity? And I want to talk about five ways to do it, and then I'll talk about those, and then I'll uh, talk about what collective dukkha looks like, and and bring those five same five uh, ways to practice. So, first at the individual level, how do we practice? The first is really to have the strong intention to practice uh, and to remember, right? So it's to remember the teaching and maybe, uh, you know, maybe it's to go into a difficult situation and say, if this gets really difficult for me, I'm going to try not to shoot the second arrow. You know, when I work one-on-one -on -one with people, the most common guidance I give is something like this. Something difficult has happened to you try not to shoot the second arrow. Because, of course, that's saving tremendous amount of suffering. And one of the reasons that mindfulness is so valuable is that we notice our tendencies to shoot the arrow much more quickly, and we can save ourselves days or months of suffering just by tracking it near the beginning. And also with the teaching, saying, I'm going to try not to shoot the second arrow. Sometimes easier said than done, right? It's not easy sometimes because we get triggered and we have old stuff and so forth. But uh, having the intention to work with it and maybe bring it into a challenging situation is one of the starting points. You know, to to uh, remember the teaching and maybe you know if you were practicing this as a daily practice, you would say, "I'm going to try to track any reactivity that occurs today and try not to shoot the second arrow or try not to grasp." You know, and 
That could be an intention which you bring into your day once or twice, three times. Just try to remember in the morning. And if you do that over a week, let's say, it'll be there for you when, you, when it is really helpful. A second important uh, pointer on this is that we have to know the level of intensity, particularly of the negative, when it's there and know that some forms of the unpleasant or the negative are um, too hard to be mindful of. And it's better to just try to get out of them. Because the third guideline, I'll say the five guidelines, first is work with intention, try to bring the teachings and practices into this situation, this part of my life. The second is gauge the level of intensity. And for really intense things, the main thing is to get out of being reactive, get out of being stuck. The third is to be mindful, use mindfulness. The fourth is to hold it with the heart energy, the compassion and the loving kindness. And the fifth is to develop skillful outward responses, like skillful speech, working skillfully with a conflict and so forth. So let me go over those five, because I think it's a good kind of guide for transforming reactivities. I've talked about the first. The second is important because when things are really strong, they take us away and we can't really be mindful. And we're kind of just stuck in them. And the best thing to do there is to come unstuck. You know, I'm really, really upset by what happened. I'm blaming myself intensely. And if I would try to be mindful, really couldn't do it. And so the best thing to do there is to try to find a way to come back to balance. So it could be talk with a friend, do something physical, exercise, you know. Um, some kinds of meditation can be helpful, like uh, loving kindness can be very helpful, compassion. Uh, but to get out, of some, get out of a difficult situation, you know. Sometimes what's really unpleasant can be related to trauma. And when trauma takes over, can't really be mindful, it kind of has us. It's the reptilian brain is just, okay, got you, right? And so what we want to know is how do I come back to balance? I, I use the, uh, like the gauge of intensity, like Olympic divers have, one to 10. And I you know, basically say, if you have an eight or nine or 10 happening, have a strategy to get out of it. That's the best thing to do. You know, so some forms of reactivity, the best thing to do is find a way to get out of it, get unstuck. If it's in the more moderate range, it's really the best thing is to try to be mindful and sort of hold everything with compassion. Because mindfulness ultimately is going to be what helps one to work through it. You know, to be mindful, to have insights, you know, to, um, for example, notice my patterns of when I get reactive. When do I get reactive with others? What leads me to judge myself harshly? What leads me to um, uh, maybe act in ways that are maybe addictive with food or something like that, you know? And, and it's to know the patterns and to study it and to uh, study, you know, the, word, the path of mindfulness, as you probably know by now, is not a quick fix. You have to study these patterns like uh, 500 times. Does everyone know that? 
right? Sometimes I think that mindfulness works by what I call the exhaustion method. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work, you know. We don't put this in our advertising, actually. Probably Asheville Insight Meditation doesn't say, come, be with your bad habits until you get totally exhausted with them. That's, that's not good, good publicity, right? <laughs> no, I, I've looked in the catalogs of different meditation centers and so forth, and to be honest, uh, a good part of what we do in meditation is actually being with our bad habits, right? Anyone relate to that? I mean, it's, wonderful things happen too, but uh, you know, I think of, there's a, a nice line from the Tibetan teacher Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, he said, self-knowledge is 70% bad news. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's completely true, but it has a ring of truth, doesn't it? <laughs> Maybe some of you it's 50-50, I don't know. But, uh, so the third is to really be mindful. Notice the patterns. Notice what triggers you. Like when I was doing some really important practice to see my own patterns of reactivity, I was in uh, meetings like with a boss, and I'd be in the meetings like every two weeks. And he was uh, seen by many people as not being a good listener, and I, I, I agreed, <laughs> sometimes judgmentally, <laughs> reactively. But in any case, I think that was true, objectively. <laughs> anyway, uh, but I would notice that when I would say something and he would just, you know, I'd make a proposal for what would be good in situation, he would just change the subject and I would, I would just kind of uh, withdraw emotionally to a place of distance moral superiority, which was quite comfortable and, uh, but I was withdrawn, you know, and, and I came to see I studied that enough, got to see, oh, what's it about? It's about, I I'm not, don't feel like I'm being listened to, right? And I could see, oh, I started to look, oh, that happens in other situations, other people, right? That was a trigger for me. It was a form of reactivity. And of course, it's related to something important, which is that we listen to each other, that we be heard. I think this just, the battery just went out, I think. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. It's okay. Um, and so the mindfulness, can you hear me okay in the back? Yeah. The mindfulness with um, our patterns is really crucial. Study them, be interested in them, study the... When you notice reactivity in meditation session or in the flow of daily life, and you can, see if you can actually be mindful. In the long run, we gain insight. Essentially, the core insight is this leads to suffering, and I don't need to do this, and it's actually not in my best interest. Something like that is what we come to, but we don't come to that unless we look at it a lot, right? Because we're kind of, it's a habit, right? It's a habit pattern, and we can't cut through our habit patterns quickly, usually. We have to look at them, but the mindfulness can cut through habit patterns. Pretty remarkable. So... Uh, that's the third. The fourth is to hold all this with kindness and compassion. That partly when we're looking at reactivity, we're looking at things which may be connected with some suffering. These are not our most beautiful parts of ourselves. And to hold it with compassion, know that this is the case for everyone. So, for example, for about, uh, gosh, 
over 15 years, I've had groups at my house in, in California on um, transforming the judgmental mind. And one of the benefits of the groups is that people come to see that their patterns of being judgmental towards self or others are pretty much like what other people do. And that, you know, because before they came, they would feel isolated and think that they had some unique problem. You, know, you think it out a little bit, that wouldn't, that wouldn't seem unlikely, but just the way we feel, we sometimes feel isolated with our stuff, right? And being in a group where you see everyone kind of is out front about what's happening, probably a lot of you have been in those kind of groups. It can happen in a meditation group as well, that you just see that one's own uh, difficult habits are very common and very similar, because a lot of us receive very similar social conditioning and so forth. And so, uh, so that helps us to hold it with compassion. But I think when we're looking at reactivity, having a regular way of going into the kind heart with loving-kindness practice or compassion practice is crucial, just to hold it in that way. And then the fifth guideline that I use is to develop a skillful response. And that sort of would take some time to unpack. By that I mean, you know, you've had a difficult encounter with someone. How do you skillfully talk to that person about a conflict? How do you understand conflict skillfully? And there's a whole lot there. So I'm going to actually come back to some of that when I talk about the social dimension, but not go there too much. But that, of course, developing a skillful outward response is really crucial. Everything up till now has been, what's a skillful inward response? But sometimes we want a skillful outward response as well. Speech is really crucial. How do we speak skillfully? You know, how do we relate to others with empathy, understanding, compassion, skillful speech? It's been a, maybe we can come back to that, you know, if we want to go there further. Let me say a little bit now about uh, how we understand transforming reactivity at the social level. And I think I was inspired to offer this partly because of our times and the nearness of the election, although I'm personally somewhat relieved by the results, but I won't go so much into that. Um, a reading from the poet Gary Snyder. He said, historically, oh, I should add one point about dukkha and the end of dukkha. Um, another way of expressing this in another teaching is to say that the three roots of dukkha are greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed is a sort of a, a way of saying grasping. Uh, hatred is a way of saying pushing away. It's kind of shorthand for the more general kinds of reactivity. Which, so the first two are the ways of being reactive. And then the third is delusion or ignorance. And it's saying that we are uh, reactive largely out of habitual energy, which is a kind of ignorance. And that the whole purpose, the whole way that we transform dukkha, is by transforming ignorance and delusion. You know, 
And that's really a crucial aspect here. So here, here's the quote from, from the poet Gary Snyder, which he, he actually wrote this like 1961. But listen to this. Historically, Buddhist philosophers have failed to analyze out the degree to which ignorance and suffering are caused or encouraged by social factors, considering fear and desire to be the given facts of the human condition. Consequently, the major concern of Buddhist philosophy is the way of knowing and the psychology with no attention paid to historical or sociological problems. And he goes on to say, traditional Buddhism has been conspicuously ready to accept or ignore the inequalities and tyrannies of whatever political system it found itself under. You can see that in the contemporary world in something like Burma, right? Those issues come up in, in the context of Burma. Here's what he says. The mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic uh, nature of the self. We need both. They are both contained in the traditional three aspects of the Dharma path, wisdom, meditation, and morality. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love and clarity that lies beneath one's own ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into the mind to see this for yourself over and over again until it becomes the mind you live in, that is the mind of love, and we might say the mind of love and wisdom. That's what we're, that's what we're trying for, you know, that we, to have the, love, the mind of love and wisdom be there more and more. Morality is bringing it out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action, ultimately towards the true, true community of all beings. 1961. I, I find that very powerful. I don't know how that was for you, but it's also a beautiful description of the direction of the path. Right? So what does, what does reactivity look like at a collective level? And here I'm helped by a friend and colleague named David Loy. Anyone know David Loy's work? Yeah, David Loy lives in Colorado now. He lived for a long time in Japan. He's a, a very good writer. He's written, he's been a pioneer in writing about the social dimensions of uh, meditation practice. And I think his most accessible book is called, what? Maybe you know, Ronya. It's something like it, it's like a publisher's title. It's like um, "Sex, Karma, and Revolution" or something. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. I think that's not quite it, but I think I think "Sex I and it, Sex know. and Karma" are in the title. I, I remember that. Anyway, uh, David was really good. He said, "Can greed, hatred, and delusion get institutionalized?" And his answer was yes. What does greed look like when it's institutionalized? Capitalism. Uh, can <laughs> an answer capitalism <laughs> or aspects of it maybe yeah, that it, that there are aspects which are ba that are based on greed. I remember really interesting interview with uh, a trader on the uh, floor of the stock market in New York. And he was saying, we have two kinds of cycles here. 
this was in a really difficult kind of downturn of the market. He said, we have two kinds of cycles here. We have the greed cycle and the fear cycle. <laughs> right now we're in the fear cycle. <laughs> but but it's, it's telling, isn't it, right? And that, that, that was, that was a, a trader's understanding of it. And so, you know, it could be, we could look at it as some who have a lot wanting more while some don't have enough. That could be called greed. That's how the, the wanting gets institutionalized, right? It could be a greed for power, right? Which is very, you know, for me that's in evidence in our country right now, greed for power in, in, in ways that sometimes subvert aspects of democracy. Right? I would say that there is a kind of, a kind of a greed there. Um, even there might be in terms of the whole ecological issue, are we, including us here, are we caught in wanting levels of material comfort which we may know intellectually are not sustainable. Is that a kind of greed that we're implicated in, in our, you know, in our use of resources? It's something for us to look at, right? That could be a kind of collective, uh, a collective uh, greed and wanting, right? And what does, um, what does collective uh, hatred or pushing away look like when that gets institutionalized? When? Wars? What? Yeah. It could be wars, it could be fighting. I was thinking just of the many ways that we have uh, some groups are targets, right? Think of racism and sexism and some aspects of, you know, around sexual orientation, age and so forth, that there, there is a kind of negativity that's right there in the culture, and that's uh, sort of collectively uh, fashioned. You know, one of the interesting things is I, I teach on those areas a fair amount, and I, I read a lot of the literature on implicit bias. People know that literature. Anyone know that literature on implicit bias? Yeah, it's about basically the unconscious roots of uh, various forms of prejudice. Do you know what the 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 group is that's most uh, most seen most negatively in the whole society. You know, you might think it's you know according to the, you know, according to the news and so forth, it might be immigrants or Muslims or, you know, sometimes historically African Americans, but it's actually older people. Now it doesn't have the same institutional. Uh, there's not the same institutional power against older people. But the views, when they did the research, that found that's where the greatest uh, prejudice is. Interesting, isn't it? Any is that worldwide or just in this country? I think it was just in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's a good point because uh, historically, elders have been revered in most cultures until very recently, right? And now you look at the advertisements which on television, which I actually personally do not look at very much, but... Occasionally, but you know, I've had friends who did studies of them. They found that elderly people in uh, advertisements are often uh, what um, made fun of. Right? They're the targets, right? But that was interesting to see that, and of course that um, that bias is shared by older people. 
it's internalized, in other words, right? Right? And so each, every society has certain kinds of collective um, putting down, bias, whatever we call it, right? So, so if we were interested in transforming reactivity, we'd want to look at that the way that uh, hatred or not wanting, pushing away gets institutionalized. This is from uh, James Baldwin. I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. See, that's the secret of scapegoating, isn't it? That there's actually pain there, but you take people's mind off the pain by making them think that someone else is the cause of the pain, right? Without actually honestly looking at the pain. That's, that's what uh, uh, people do who manipulate these sort of things, right? So there is a real pain, but when you scapegoat people, they don't look honestly at their pain. Right? And that's very common in our society, isn't it? Right? And so we can look at the different forms, uh, you know, different forms of scapegoating, the wars, the dependence on wars and so forth. That would be an example of the institutionalization of that form of reactivity. Right? This is a quotation from Thomas Merton. Do you know who Merton? Merton, the uh, contemplative Christian? who lived in the last years, many years of his life, at the monastery of Gethsemane in Kentucky, south of Louisville. I'm actually going to go visit there. I visit there every year. You know, when I lived in Kentucky, I would go out there about, about every month or six weeks and was part of a group reading uh, Merton's unpublished manuscripts. It was pretty cool. We met with monks and nuns from the Sisters of Loretto. And, and uh, it was really interesting. You know, I was... I could call myself at that time a Buddhist practitioner, and they were virtually all Christian, but we never talked about the differences, you know, you know, because we were interested in what's the inner experience and how do we, how do we deal with fear, or how do we deal with, like we're saying, reactivity. That's actually what happened. We talked about our inner experiences. We never too much, hardly at all, talked about doctrines. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. I, and, and I'm going there and uh, going there next Monday, you know, to, to visit for the, because I, uh, I go to Kentucky tomorrow on the Greyhound bus. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> okay, so this is from Merton. It is not only our hatred of others that is dangerous, but also and above all our hatred of ourselves, particularly that hatred of ourselves which is too deep and too powerful to be consciously faced. For it is this which makes us see our own evil in others and unable to see it in ourselves. And we project. And projection is big, right? And it's done, again, scapegoating and so forth. Could be said, you know the notion of projection? We don't want to see things in ourselves. We make believe it's not there in ourselves, but it's really out there. Okay, and then um, in terms of ignorance or delusion, how does that manifest collectively? What are some of the roots of that, you know? So we could, uh, you know, I remember there's a line from the uh, 
eighth century writer and practitioner Shantideva. Shantideva wrote Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which was the favorite book of the Dalai Lama. Okay, it's about the Bodhisattva, someone who's committed to inner transformation and helping others. Beautiful, beautiful image. And so in, in that book it says, this world is beset with insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. So that really, see, you can see there's a connection between the in, lack of inner work or the inner work and how we respond socially. So that there can be that level of delusion. A lot of it in our culture is just distraction, isn't it? Just really not paying attention, getting distracted by the latest this or the latest that or being hooked on the technology. So much information, right? Um, and so, right, you probably could fill that, this out, right? You know, the, how, how, how there is delu delusion. So, how do we, you know, let me try to go through the, I'm going to try to finish just in a few moments. How do we go through those uh, five suggestions I made? You know, how do we work, you know, working with collective reactivity and what I mentioned, it's obviously in some ways a big task, right? But I think what I want to suggest is that there are ways that each of us can connect our inner work with reactivity, transforming reactivity, with our outer work. And just to take on like a small part of it and, and keep on going with that. And so we can try to have clarity of intention and see where, you know, really have the intention to transform um, the different kinds of reactivity, I was talking about it in terms of greed, hatred, and delusion, related to the collective life that manifests in me. Right? I can do that, right? I can have the intention to do that. I can have the intention to work with my own socially conditioned biases. Right? Right? And it's a very important area to look at our conditioning around race, age, uh, sexual orientation, gender, very up now, right, in the culture, right? Really important, you know. I don't know about you, but in the, uh, the Bay Area, we have a lot of groups where people are connecting meditation with looking into conditioning around race and gender, right? And there are also people doing that with age, you know. Um, and the best way to do that is to be in a small group with people who more or less fit your demographic so that you can avoid shame and blame and just be honest and go into it and it can make a big change and do reading and be mindful, right? It can really, it's really, uh, I think, a crucial part of all this. It's sort of uh, taking responsibility for our own conditioning, right? So that would be part of it. Uh, also very crucial to know the level of intensity of the reactivity and of how, what our experiences are. Know, you know, if I have really difficult emotions connected with uh, these phenomena. Some people have a fair amount of trauma, right? To know how to work with difficult emotions connected with the social world. You know, a lot of, you know, I certainly meet people who uh, have a lot of difficult emotions and sometimes are caught in them for you know, months, right? Anyone relate to that? Yeah, yeah, so... And of course we have, with our practice, we have ways of working with that. But to know the level of intensity, is this something 
that I really need, you know, I need R&R or I need to uh, take a break, you know, or I need to work with this. One of the things that I suggest is really be careful about not taking in too much information. And I once did an experiment where I did a retreat where I was meditating like 10 or 15 hours a day, but I was on the computer three hours a day doing email and also looking at the New York Times website and that sort of stuff. And uh, I found that I took in three times more information than I really needed because there's something addictive about it. Oh, oh latest news, oh, right? And sometimes when we take in more information, it can lead us to inaction and getting over what? Over, uh, what's the word? Saturated. Oversaturated, yeah, very much. So that's careful. Being mindful about what's there you know, and bringing that out into the world, being mindful of the patterns, you know, noticing, uh, you know, obviously uh, healing the internalized social conditioning, but also studying these different areas, uh, bringing in the heart practices, really crucial, compassion, loving kindness, forgiveness, you know. I think I'm going to finish just in a moment, I said a few moments ago, but, uh, <laughs> but, Part of this is uh, really, I mean, it's giving, for me, I think we need a new model of what it means to be socially involved. You know? And uh, the old model, I think, of the activist, of being someone who's maybe o overly self-righteous, who's really negative towards the opponent, you can fill out the model, right? If you look at it, it's based on a lot of reactivity. Yeah. One of the things I didn't see, say earlier was that I think that the teachings that you, that you get from people like Gandhi and King and Dorothy Day and other teachers of nonviolence, it's exactly the same teaching as the teaching of the two arrows. We have received the first arrow, pain, oppression. We will not respond in kind. We will not react in kind. And so... These traditions are tremendous, they in themselves tell us in many ways, how do you uh, respond to reactivity, institutionalized, without being reactive yourself? Which is the, would be the formula for being with friends, family members, being interpersonal when there's reactivity, right? And so I think that there's a whole new model of a more spiritually grounded person who works in social service, social action, activism, and so forth, that's called for. Uh, and that is, because that I think the reactive model of activism is re reaching its limits. And it's really not very functional in our times in many ways. I'm just going to say that, like, that maybe uh, we, we can talk about that in a moment. So let me just end with... Uh, let me end with a quote. Well, I'll end with two things, three things. <laughs> two things. Okay. Uh, one is uh, from Howard Thurman. And Howard Thurman was an uh, African American theologian and activist, uh, taught at, uh, I think, Howard for a period of time, Boston University. And he came out to San Francisco in the 1940s. And he founded one of the first interracial communities. He was a Christian theologian. And he, 
really combine the inner life with uh, social action. And someone asked him, he died I think 1980, 81 or so, someone asked him near the end of his life as a young man came to him and said, what should I do? I want to help the world. And he said, uh, Howard Thurman responded, don't ask what the world needs. How's that for an activist? <laughs> don't ask what the world needs, but ask what makes you come alive because what, make, what the world needs is people who have come alive. Right. And then last thing, I have taught one thing and one thing only, dukkha and the end of dukkha. So thank you. So there's a lot there, but I wanted to at least give the outlines. So, um, reflections, questions, observations. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, yeah, good. How do you respond skillfully? How do I? Respond skillfully. How do you train yourself okay. for a skillful response? How to respond skillfully. Do you mean like uh, in language or in what context? When, when you said the, the skillful response yeah. is very important. So yeah, yeah. an example of that. Yeah, so skillful response, that was shorthand actually for several areas of training. In some ways, the, uh, uh, a lot of what I talked about up till then was how do we have a skillful inner response? What's a skillful inner response when I start judging myself? Right? So a skillful inner response might be, first of all, to notice it, which is big, right? Because often we don't notice it like for three hours. <laughs> Right? And by that time, we've done some damage. Right? And so we, uh, a skillful inner response would be to notice it, maybe hold it with compassion, find some other ways of framing it, etc. So we could use different tools there. If we have an, a difficult interpersonal uh, relationship, uh, lots going to depend on context, but there, I, I teach uh, sometimes... Uh, six and seven day retreats on skillful speech or co-teach. Maybe we're talking about maybe bringing it to Southern Dharma. Or maybe I could do something like that here. Rani and I talked about maybe doing a day long like next year. Could do a day long on skillful speech. It's great stuff. Very, very practical. You know, the... um, You know, when we teach the retreats, we work with the fundamentals like for four days, and then the last two days we uh, bring the fundamentals into difficult situations. Like we do role plays, like we have we tell someone else to say something which really triggers you, <laughs> and they they do it, and then you say, "Okay, how am I going to respond?" Right? It's it's actually a lot of fun, right? And <laughs> sound, sound, sound like fun. <laughs> Uh, we, we, now, now remember the scale of one to ten. We don't start with the tens, right? You, so, but you say, okay, okay. Here's a tr- here's a level five trigger. Okay, so and we, you know, you know, like you know, someone, you know, uh, a family member says, "You're so sensitive." Anyone ever had that said? A lot of meditators have that. Anyway, you're so sensitive, and then what? How do you respond skillfully? And let's say you're triggered, you're reactive, and you. So, in that situation, what would be wise? Well, first of all, uh, see if you can come back to balance. 
Because if, if someone says you're so sensitive and you get upset, you're probably going to just say something back which is reactive. So we teach a lot just uh, pausing, taking appropriate breaks. Know this is where knowing your own internal level of intensity is really important. So if I know that I'm triggered to a level eight, and I know that no skillful response is going to come out of level eight, then I, you know, I, I take a break, right? Or I say, you know, it's important to, for me to um, uh, come back and talk about this, but I think I want to wait. And of course, everything's context dependent as to whether the other person's going to hear that. Some will, some won't, right? And so, yeah, and then skillful response. So partly it'd be a bunch of tools about speech. I also teach, like to teach on conflict, how to be skillful with conflict. So just to have a whole understanding, how can I be skillful with conflict? Understood not so much as aggression or hostility, but just a difference. Like, okay, I and my partner, we want to go out to eat, and my partner wants a Mexican restaurant, and I want Chinese. How do we deal with that? It's a conflict, isn't it? Could get bad. <laughs> right, but have, you know, so that's an easy kind of conflict. But but I think the principles are the same. I actually, uh, last year I was invited to teach in Israel, and I taught a I taught a retreat on what we call engaged practice with two Israelis, and I was teaching there. I was in Israel teaching how to be skillful with conflict. That's called chutzpah. <laughs> Right, so anyway, um, that's the beginning, right? But, but there, there are a lot of different modalities, and just asking the question, am I responsive or reactive, goes a long way. And sometimes we have to take, taking breaks is a really important part. Getting out, you know, when you're really upset, level eight, triggered, you can't really respond skillfully. So pausing, taking breaks, really crucial. Yeah, but great question, thanks. Other thoughts, reflections on really anything? Inner level, outer level, yeah. I'm curious about, um, this seems to dovetail really nicely with concepts of insight dialogue. Yeah. I'm curious as to your feelings about that. Yeah, um, I don't know if any people know, how many know of insight dialogue? So a few. Insight dialogue was developed by Gregory Kramer, who lives in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, I don't actually know it real well, but I've, uh, you know, I've talked with him a fair amount, and I think it's it's um, it's a relational practice. So you know, like in the in the book that I did, which is outside, I did a book called The Engaged Spiritual Life, and I talk about three areas of practice. One is individual, one is relational, and one is collective. Right, and I think some of the most exciting ways we can bring our, our mindfulness practice into our lives is developing relational forms, like in speech practice, right? Or working with conflict at an interpersonal level. And insight dialogue is a way to work relationally also. How do we, how do we cultivate mindfulness while we're actually with others, right? And so I think it fits in and gives, gives some very good resources, but I'm limited by my, and I don't know so much about it. Okay. I don't either. There's a, there's a three-day retreat at Hartwood is oh, yeah. again that I'm going to. So oh yeah, but I, everyone I know who's gone into it in depth thinks very well of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And he, he has a book on that, so you can read about it. Yeah. 
Other thoughts, oh, questions? Insight. Insight Dialogue. dialogue. Yeah, Gregory Kramer. Uh, I think K-R-A-M-E-R. You know, probably website that explains the basics. Yeah. Anything else? Any thoughts you have? I very really welcome uh, half-baked thoughts. <laughs> Don't think that they have to be fully baked to come out. Because if they're half-baked, you might, actually might be onto something. But you think, ah. <laughs> so. I loved your translation of uh, reactivity. Yeah, of dukkha's reactivity. Really for me. You hear different yeah. words, but I never... But it really works today. It makes sense, doesn't it? Yep, it's big. Yeah, because it's... Um, suffering is really kind of misleading, because it, it says, you know, if suffering means pain, and the Buddha is saying, I teach... Uh, the cessation of pain doesn't make any sense, right? Because uh, uh, pain's there as long as we're alive. And the Buddha, in fact, and when he was older, he had headaches, he had a bad back, you know, so, so that's why I don't like suffering as a translation, because in English it's ambiguous, could mean pain. And we're certainly not trying to just end all pain. That doesn't make sense, right? But ending the second arrow, well, that can make some sense. So I have, I have an illness or I'm injured. What would it mean to not shoot the second arrow with that? Well, pretty clear meaning, isn't it? And, and what would it mean to shoot the second arrow? You know, down in the dumps, negative scenarios, blaming myself, etc. Pretty clear meaning, you know, so... I, I find that really uh, helpful, you know, myself, you know, to... And I, could, I sort of struggled with some of the uh, texts and the teachings until they got clear. But reactivity is not a literal translation, but I think it's, it gets at the meaning much better. Please, yeah? Could that second arrow also be, like, fighting? Yeah. The worst. It, when I would get sick, oh, yeah. anybody that's lived with me, I'm like absolutely <laughs> miserable. Yeah. And over these last few years with mindfulness and meditation and you know just spiritual work, I've become you know when I do get sick with a cold or whatever it is, I've stopped fighting it. That's right. I've stopped fighting that. Oh, I hate being sick. I'm so miserable and right. cursing and berating myself. And what did I do wrong? And blah blah blah. Instead, I'm going. Oh, I'm sick. And the suffering lasts, it, it, it shrunk down. So yep, that's right. I'm not complaining as much. I'm not a horrible patient anymore. I'm more accepting. But yeah. I realized I was fighting it. I was fighting that's right. being sick. Yeah. No, it, it, that's, that's it's uh, very, very clearly said um, that uh, what you were describing was uh, shooting the second arrow in various ways. And just to see how that, in a sense, does bring a lot more suffering, right? Yeah. It's way less, uh, you, know, it, you know, it's like if you can just, okay, I'm sick, not so pleasant in some ways, maybe not going to work has some pleasant aspects. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so, but, but in any case, yeah, so I think that uh, you could say that, you know, the, what you're calling fighting is a form of the pushing away. 
It's trying to resist it. Resistance is another good synonym, right? Resisting being sick. That would be a form of reactivity. That's the second arrow. And so, yeah, and so, again, it, it, uh, uh, one can be sick, and, and so being responsive, again, this is in your question, I can be responsive and do all I can to get better. That's not reactivity, right? That's more responsiveness. Yeah. Could, could have elements of reactivity, but generally, you know, uh, it's, uh, actually being uh, non-reactive would give us actually better chances of getting better. Right? Partly because we're not just, you know, uh, if we're just making ourselves miserable, that's not going to help us get better. Probably, I would imagine miserable people stay sicker more than people with joy even when they're sick, right? I, would ima I don't know, I imagine there's studies on that. Right. Yeah, maybe we're getting at time. Should we take uh, one more, Rania? We're, sure. we're a little bit, I mean, I can stay, but I probably some people, I probably, probably wouldn't even know that what time it is, but <laughs> looking at the clock. But what should we do? Should we, um, how many people are okay to stay for three or four minutes? How many people have to leave right away? Anyone? Okay, so we'll maybe take one and one more, maybe one more after that. Okay. Yeah, so um, I've just been looking, I mean, it's very clear for me when I'm in aversion or resistance and it's really uncomfortable and I'm very clear about this yeah. reactivity and that. Um, it's harder to see with the grasping because the grasping, while it's happening, feels good. It feels like, oh, yeah. there's, there's something that I'm going to get that... Yeah feels satisfying, you know, and uh, of course, on the other side of it, the disappointment when that doesn't happen, or when I don't get what I want, it's easier yeah. to, to see, but in the moment of the grasping, it's harder to catch. That's right. Um, very good point. Um, it's true that the, because the grasping is grasping after the pleasant, it doesn't typically wake us up in the same way that uh, the pushing away wakes us up. Because then we, you know, we get into fights, we shoot the second arrow in that way. Um, and so uh, it's harder. Sometimes, you know, so there are a few ways that we can look at that, we can recognize that it's harder. A few ways we can look at it. One of them might be to look at it after the fact. You know, like, oh, just reflect, maybe at the end of the day, did I grasp today? What was that like? Right, and to study it. So we can even bring it up in a meditation and just bring it up, okay, what was that, what did that feel like? Because the, the aim is to try to have it be able to be mindful in the moment, if we can. Again, maybe look at what situations is my grasping most obvious, you know. Uh, for some people, I think for myself, it might be around food. That's kind of, it's basically what, uh, typically around what, uh, food, life and death and sex. You know, some, something like that, right? And, but I can look at it and then uh, something like food, sometimes after you grasped, it actually, it feel, felt good in the moment but doesn't feel good afterwards. Anyone relate to that? <laughs> right, and so, actually studying how it doesn't feel good afterwards can be a way to actually explore the territory. 
I think I talked about one instance of that at the retreat, didn't I? Yes, I remember. Uh, <laughs> so, very good food. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, look, so sometimes when we grasp, it feels good in the moment, but it doesn't feel good afterwards, right? And so that's something we can also look at. Yeah, is and... There, is there a second arrow involved in that? I'm not, we'll see how that Well, it's the second arrow teaching is really about the unpleasant. But the reactivity is the grasping after the pleasant, right? And so um, we can, you know, we, we could reflect, you know, did taking that third piece of cake really make me happy? Right? We can ask that, you know, and uh, what's that like? And so we can in a way, because uh, the mindfulness is going to be crucial. Or, you know, the other example I gave, like grasping after what I want to occur in the meeting. I can see how those forms of grasping actually lead to problems. Right? And so I think really being honest about what happens is important. And again, like you say, because it's pleasant, we tend to look way, way more at the unpleasant circumstances. Yeah. yeah, so there's a lot there. Maybe last one, and then we'll, we'll finish. You mentioned the institutionalized yeah. stuff. And you talked about activism and those kinds of things, but I was wondering what kind of role would my working with in my own self yeah. find these problems and having that come emanate from my consciousness to the general consciousness. Yeah. I believe you pull in and push back and forth between the few larger consciousness. Yeah. So would that be a way of saying, well I'm doing something because I'm getting my own self together and putting that out there in the universal I I think so very much that uh Let's look at, you know, some of the big ones like race, gender, sexual orientation, age, and so forth. Maybe religion, you know. And when I look very honestly about what I have, and again, the, the powerful aspect of the social conditioning is that, you know, we have these social hierarchies. We have people who tend to be in groups either higher or lower. Everyone internalizes it. That's what, they, like I said, older people internalize that older people aren't as good, right? And so, uh, you know, people who are gay or lesbian internalize the conditioning and have to work through it, right? And so, for one, and, and there are different ways of working through it, you know, like, uh, again, I've, I, for about almost four years, I facilitated a group of... Uh, Dharma te of meditation teachers who are white, right? And I'm a little bit tricky because I'm a Jewish background and I always think that I'm white with an asterisk. <laughs> I don't know, because there's a, because I, I know the history and, you know, like Jews became white around 1953 <laughs> after the war. So it was, it was a little complicated, you know, the, the, the history is amazing, you know, this stuff is just, I mean, it's crazy. 
you know, and my father, for example, could not go to medical school because of being Jewish, right? So most of that stuff only changed in the early 1960s. And, you know, anyway, uh, but in any case, I was, um, uh, I engaged in this, uh, I, I facilitated a group for, of, of teachers and we talked about whiteness, race, and our teaching. We did this for four years. We read books together, we learned, we talked about our own conditioning. It was, you know, it's not always easy, but it was rich, right? And then how do we bring that into our teaching? And when you, when you, uh, when you look into your own conditioning like that, whatever issue, some of the ways that you really, that you can work through it is, first of all, you can know the history of the conditioning. So you learn history. A really important way to work with it is to really um, form connections with people toward, you know, who are kind of on, in the other group, right? And so you develop empathy across groups and relationships. You know that you get the history, maybe you see films, read stuff, and so it's one of the ways of working through stuff. And then you bring it in, and it's natural when you do that, that you'd want to change the institutions that you're part of, right? You know, your workplaces, maybe even other dimensions. And so, and you know, one person who I heard actually, um, Named, a guy named John Powell, who's the director of the Institute on Diversity at the University of California, Berkeley, who I've had a lot of conversations with. And he's African-American from Detroit. And you're from, you're from Michigan, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, he said that one of the greatest hopes for, that he has is of the greatly increasing number of extended families which go across ethnic boundaries. He said that the number is above 40% right now. And when that happens, people uh, much more naturally develop empathy <coughs> and are willing to stand up, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a you know, uh, person who, you know, I don't know, is in an ethnic group that is on the downside, and that uh, person is your um, you know, your 12-year-old nephew, right? And you're concerned about that person's experience at school, right? And you're concerned about how that person will relate to the police or whatever, right? And it changes everything. I've seen that with people. And so he said that was one of the greatest hopes because you have that kind of... you, And you also look at your own stuff, but the empath- empathy is such a crucial factor in all of this. Because when you're, you know, with the conditioning leads us mostly to be empathic towards people in our own groups and not empathic across groups. That's the general way it works. And so when you start to develop empathy across groups, a lot of things can change. You know, and, and I, I think some of that's happening. Does that make some sense? It's like um, coming, National it's Coming Out Day. Yeah. Coming out. <laughs> I think that's exactly yeah. what happened with gay and lesbian people. The reason we are where we are now yeah. is because we made ourselves visible, and by doing that, you have connections with your neighbor across the street who no longer sees gay and lesbian people the same way. That's right, and and there is the possibility of empathy because they know you as human beings, right, and they care. Mm-hmm. Hey,
So that is that. So a lot can happen, you know, when you look, and especially when you look into your own conditioning in groups. That's that's a crucial factor, where you share it and you can really be honest and not because the hardest thing about this is in some contexts there's shame and blame, and when that happens, there's not going to be any learning, right? Like when people say you're this or you're that and give, be judgmental. You have to have, have to have context where you can say whatever's there in your mind and people are going to be uh, respectful even if it, you know, even if you're saying, you know, this is my conditioning and it sounds pretty horrible to me, but to just be able to say that, right? I didn't quite say that quite right, but you know what I mean by that? Yeah. So it's, um, I think it's one of the things that's happening that could happen now that could make a big difference. Like if that gets more and more widespread and some of it's just demanded by the increasing diversity. Probably, uh, you know, in, is that increasing in Asheville? Some? Is what increasing diversity? Yeah. Of different kinds, there are different kinds of diversity. It depends on which side of the diversity you're on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great. Is it, I think maybe a good ending place. I think it's hopeful. I, I like that 40% figure because it's only getting bigger, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I like that. And it is exactly the same logic that when you actually get to know people, you drop the uh, labels and the conditioning can more easily get, just you know, go out. You know? I also think that I'm just a little bit of added nuance to that is, is that um, as long as you don't know people who are different. Yeah. They aren't real. In That's your right. Mind. They're simply a collection of mm -hmm. stereotypical beliefs that you have about that group. That's, that's as right. Soon, yeah, as soon as you allow yourself to step forward as a member of a group that's marginalized in some way, yeah. and declare yourself to be this thing that, that's supposed to be so har horrible, yeah. um, and they realize, oh, it's Sib. And That's right. all of a sudden they knew you for three years and didn't know this about you and suddenly they know it. The whole context That's right. changes. And it, it really matches the research actually, which is like the research on implicit bias. What uh, basically is in terms of in-groups and out-groups. Mm -hmm. And the uh, what's characteristic of an in-group is that one knows the people as individuals, people who are kind of in your same group, you know, whether it's sexual orientation or race or even in gender. People who are in your own group, you know them more as individuals, tend to have empathy and tend to give them the benefit of the doubt. People who are in the out group, the different group, you tend to see them not as individuals but as representatives of the group, right? And so you don't really see them as people. You see them as representative of the groups, tend not to have empathy, and tend not to give them the benefit of the doubt. That's what they have found in the studies. So it pretty much matches what you're saying, right? And so when you when you go against that, uh, and you actually get to know people, it goes against the conditioning and can lead in these many directions. And the, what they're also finding, last thing, I've said last thing a few times. <laughs> <laughs> is that their, uh, mindfulness can play a really key role in this. Some of the most promising work in this area is uh, they use mindfulness because then you can track your own thoughts and you can 
notice them. You know, uh, my favorite book in this area is called Deep Diversity. Anyone know that book? Very interesting book. It's written by Shaquille Chaudhry, who's Canadian, and he's a diversity consultant and trainer. But he brings, he summarizes a lot of the neuroscience, the implicit bias work, but also brings in compassion, mindfulness, empathy, and even and also social justice work, all in one fairly readable book. Yes. Deep Diversity by Shaquille Chaudhry, C H like O-U-D-H-R-Y, something like that. But the Deep Diversity is the title, rec, you know, recommended. So let's sit now, just for to close. Thank you, thank you for your patience, attention, and uh, great questions and points. So just see what was helpful from tonight. could be related to the theme of the talk, where we went with the discussion, but it might be something else that has nothing to do with anything we talked about that just was important for you tonight. That's okay. <laughs> and just, and just be with what was important for you tonight. We'll just close with uh, recognizing that we do this practice both for ourselves and for others. Ultimately, the horizon of our practice is to benefit all beings without exception. Uh, thank you for your uh, kind attention and uh, sharing. Yes, and thank you, Donald, for being here before you all run off. Uh, please, uh, first of all, thank you for being here and for your practice. That's the most important thing. The, uh, another thing is Donald comes out of here with uh, the kindness of his heart. We don't pay him anything, so whatever Donna or generosity you give, we like to stay in the Buddhist tradition of generosity, practicing generosity to reduce and actually heal ourselves from the greed, hatred, and delusion. Generosity is an antidote to that. So please practice generosity for uh, Dhamma so that he'll come back next year. And, uh, <laughs> and I like coming here anyway. Oh, and practice generosity, please. Uh, tomorrow we won't be here tomorrow night, Thursday, because people usually won't come two nights in a row, so don't come tomorrow night. Uh, Saturday, this Saturday is our half-day meditation retreat, 9 a.m. If you want to do that, please come here. We sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, talk. Um, Wednesday, next Wednesday, we have another special event. David Chernikoff is coming. And if you've experienced David, you know he's, he's amazing too. He's a great storyteller and Buddhist teacher, so you'll mm. enjoy him. So please be here next Wednesday. Uh, if you're new to the practice, you're going to want to take this mindfulness, basics of mindfulness meditation class series. It's an introductory four-week class series uh, taught by Deborah Marie Diamond. She's a teacher, a mindfulness teacher, and you'd love it. So if you're interested in that, please let me know because it's filling up quickly and we'll get you signed up in the hallway. Good. And I, I have out there um, my teaching schedule. If you want to get occasional emails about what's happening, I send about two or three a year. So there's a sign-up sheet. I have my teaching schedule. I have a reading list out there. And I have uh, 
some copies of the book I did on connecting inner work with social service and social change, kind of like a training manual, came out of about 15 years of work. Is it, could it be on Audible, maybe? Yeah, I, it, I believe so. Uh -huh, I it's it. a great book, if yeah, you don't thank have. You. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you everyone. Thank you. Yeah. And I'll be, be hanging around here if anyone wants to connect. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.